Thanks for tuning in to Women in Product Marketing. I'm your host, Mary Sheehan with Adobe. For those of you that are new to the pod, we explore the world of product marketing through the lens of the women who run it at some of the fastest growing technology companies in the world. Shout out to our sponsor, Clue. You're losing 30% of your deals to your competitors. Not cool. That competitive revenue gap is costing your business millions of dollars. So how do you tip the scale in your favor? Clue's competitive enablement platform makes it simple for product marketers and compete pros to give their revenue teams the exact right intel at the exact right time. Positioning, messaging, objection handling, and FUD, Clue shares real-time competitive insights in the places your reps already live. It makes it easy for them to contribute insights from the field. All right, let's do this. Hello and welcome back to Women in Product Marketing. I'm thrilled to kick off season five with Vanessa Thompson, the Senior Director of Product Marketing at Twilio. Prior to this role, Vanessa has had an amazing career working for Blue Wolf, which is an IBM company, as well as the IDC, which is a renowned research firm. Welcome, Vanessa. Really excited to have you here today. Hi, Mary. Thanks so much for having me. Well, let's kick off the season with a new question And we're going deep, which is, can you share a time that you failed and what you've learned? Yeah, this you're really giving it to me at the beginning of the season here was a really rough question. But (laughs) I will just start off by saying this is such a hard one because I don't really see failure sort of anywhere, right? Like I try pretty hard to set myself and my team up for success. So as a leader, obviously... I want to make sure that my team's doing their best work and they feel good and they're psychologically safe and they have all of these tools and things there for them to be successful. And so, you know, in my personal life and actually just at home with my family, I have like sort of some standard rules. My husband started them and now I've kind of picked them up and they're sort of rules that we live by. And they are pretty simple. Number one, don't be stupid. Number two, don't be lazy. And number three, do it right the first time. And they apply to everything from, you know, cleaning the house to doing a project at work. And so you can set yourself up for success by thinking about making sure you're covering all of these three bases. And then, yeah, failure is less of a failure and more of a, hey, I forgot to do number one or I forgot to do number three. And so I think it's a nice kind of way to shift your mind away from failure and more into every single time and even upon reflection, how can I set myself up for success now and in the future? Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) that's so cool. That's great. Yeah, it's setting you up for success and making it where, you know, something does happen, you actually can say, oh, I kind of skipped through this. Or if something's outside of those bounds, well, you've done everything you could and it's still, the product launch still failed. So I like it. (laughs) Yeah, and as long as it's in your circle, then you did your best to make sure that you covered off everything. So yeah. That's awesome. Well, we've been lucky enough to already have someone on the pod from Twilio. So Diana Smith from Twilio.org joined us a couple of seasons ago, but I'd love to hear more about your focus at Twilio and in general, what product marketing is all about there. 
Yeah, well, Diana's awesome. I'm so glad you had her on the podcast. But I'll just say that, Twilio, if you haven't heard about us before, we're a customer engagement platform that is used by hundreds and thousands of businesses and a bunch of developers to build unique and personalized experiences for their customers. So we're really well known for democratizing channels like voice and text and chat and video and email or through APIs so that developers can build those into their digital experiences. My team at Twilio covers our main communication channels, things like messaging, email, video, and account security. And then I also have some product marketers out in the region, so in EMEA, uh, APJ, and Latin America. That's awesome. I, I was explaining Twilio to my husband today, who is an architect and not in the tech industry. And I was mm-hmm. saying, you don't know this, but Twilio products touch you in some way every day, (laughs) whether or not you know it or not. So it's really cool. It's this, you know, underpinning of so many of the technologies that we have. So obviously super important and why we wanted to have two of you on the podcast, but I'd love to hear more about your role as a senior director and looking through your LinkedIn. I, I also thought it was super interesting. I believe you started out as sort of the interim senior director, and then we're able to come fully into this role. So can you talk a little bit about what the charter is and some of the things that you did to get here? Yeah, I mean, if you've been following Twilio, we've been growing really quickly since the time that I've been there. I mean, we've grown sort of 10 from a people perspective since I've joined Twilio five years ago. And so when I first joined, I was part of sort of a small I guess you could call it a skunk works and we were creating a new product sort of adjacently attached to Twilio, right? So we're an independent business unit, just building kind of a cool new product. And, you know, the Twilio team organized us in that way so that we could scale, grow, move quickly, all of those kinds of things. But what happened for me and what happens to a lot of product marketers is people notice you're doing really good work and then you get asked to do more and more and more. And so At the time, my CMO and the person that ran the broader product marketing org asked me to step into more of a leadership role across the team. And so we hadn't found anybody to run product marketing across our major communication channels. And I happened to have covered Twilio in my past as an industry analyst at IDC. And so I did have quite a background or more of an extensive background in kind of the industry, how things work, how it should be organized. And even though I didn't have like an explicit product marketing background, I got asked to come in and look after the team. So yeah, and over time, that VP ended up retiring at the end of that year. And that was right before COVID happened. And so I had to take on leadership of the product marketing team to the early parts of COVID. And then we ended up reorganizing and getting a new structure. So, wow. Yeah. Well, I applaud you for that. That was probably yeah. the hardest time ever to manage, let alone step into a new role. So obviously you did really well for, yeah, <laughs> for it to become a full-time position, but thanks for sharing that. And you know, speaking of IDC and your background there, like most product marketers, I know that you took a non-linear path to become a product marketer and you mentioned that a little bit, but could you unpack for mm-hmm. us a little bit more how you made the jump from IDC to Twilio and you know, what else it was about product marketing that really lured you to this role? Yeah, the nice thing about product marketing, and I'll kind of like work from where I am and kind of go back to where I think I figured it out, is that as an analyst, I was already working with a bunch of product marketers doing product marketing type work, right? So I was consulting with 
PMM leaders on like, hey, how should my pricing work and doing evaluations or doing custom projects on like, hey, I would need you to interview all of these C-level executives and give me some white papers on, you know, what they're thinking about. And so I'd already sort of understood the realm or the sphere of product marketing work and been adjacently doing a lot of that work just from my point of view of the world on the analyst side. I had a bit of an interesting kind of role, a bridging role to kind of get to where I am now, which was working at Blue Wolf. And Blue Wolf was like a Salesforce consulting firm. And so we did a lot of custom consulting with customers. And I specifically worked in the customer experience practice, doing empathy map building, like building out personas and customer journey mapping and those kinds of things. So deeply understanding customer pains to try and help them figure out, okay, what solutions do you need to deploy in the future? And so much of that applies to what we do in product marketing as well. And so I feel like I kind of went through my career in a way that was like not intentionally ending up at product marketing, but I ended up here because all of the things that I was doing sort of naturally led me in that path. Wow, that's so amazing. I don't know if I've ever heard of an analyst jumping to PMM, but that makes so much sense. And your competitive and industry knowledge just must be so amazing when you're coming over from that side. Yeah, yeah. And there's a few of us. There's a few of my ex-IDC colleagues or some other industry analyst frenemies, I guess we could call <laughs> each other, that have ended up in product marketing. But yeah, it's a pretty natural fit, I would say. Depending on the company, and every company operates product marketing a little bit differently. And so depending on the company, it could be a really good fit. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Well, one thing we were talking about before we started recording were myth busters of product marketing. So one I wanted to run by you and tease up is a myth that the relationship between how your company is organized and how effective the PMM team is doesn't matter. I think a lot of companies just throw a product marketer into the mix because it's a hot commodity right now or bring a product marketer in that, you know, a little bit late to the game or one that doesn't have a ton of experience and treat them as a consultant in a lot of ways. So what would you say to the myth that, you know, hey, anywhere you put product marketing in, anywhere you plug them in, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, it's so interesting, right? Because as I've spent more time inside product marketing and talking to other product marketing leaders and just trying to understand and reflect on all the information I've learned along my career, it's interesting because as we talked about earlier, every company sets up product marketing a little bit differently because this sort of operate a bit like putty filling in some gaps between customers and sales and their product team, right? And so if you are able to be strategic with where product marketing is aligned to, like in some cases it's aligned to product, in most cases it's aligned to marketing, some it's like in a different spot. But most of the time, like if you're in marketing and one of your key stakeholders is product and you don't have a really strong interlock on the product strategy side, or you're not really always exposed to sort of future looking product strategy or roadmap or like any of those kinds of things, and you're not part of the conversation, it becomes difficult to do a really good job because then you're not able to build that bridge between products and the marketing org and the rest of the go-to-market team, right? It can be really difficult to, if you are set up as, you know, more of a consultant to the other marketing functions, like if you're not leading and driving messaging and positioning 
and that doesn't flow through into content and campaigns and like all the other teams that, that should be kind of really centered around your positioning, messaging, narrative, then it becomes difficult for everyone to be sharing the same narrative with customers and to be consistent. And so, yeah, it's just an interesting one. I think about that a lot, but it also impacts who you hire in your PMM team and how your team is organized, right? There's so many different things, right? If you are really well connected to your product team, you might find that your PMMs are more product centric than marketing centric. And if, you know, if it's different, then maybe you might have more PMMs that are kind of quote unquote marketers versus like actual product experts. So it's a really interesting one to think about is many of the folks that listen to this podcast, I know they're sort of moving up through their companies and their organizations. So it's good to sort of think about the broader role and of product marketing and how it can impact overall success of your go-to-marketing. Awesome. So the myth is busted. It does matter. You have to think about it strategically. (laughs) Love it. Well, great. We're going to jump into some of your recent AMA questions. Unsurprisingly, one that you did recently was about market research and another one was about sales (laughs) enablement. So let's start with market research. And I guess just kind of broadly, what are some of the top methods that you have for conducting effective competitive research? Yeah, this is interesting. I think the sort of philosophy that you sort of have to have in mind before you really start thinking about like, okay, what tactics am I going to go and employ for competitive or how am I going to think about market research? To me, market research is really broad. It encompasses things like what are our customers saying? How can we use that in content marketing? How can we use that to drive thought leadership? How can we use that to help our customers understand more about what we do? How can we help our customers understand how much value they're going to get? And so there's one arm, which is like, we can activate all of that information that we're collecting or that research that we're collecting. And then on the other side is what is going on in the competitive environment? How are we thinking about our place in the universe of options that a customer could potentially have and how are we placing ourselves there? And so there's a lot of, you know, how do we work with the analyst relations team to do well and all of the analyst reports and all those kinds of things too. And so I think broadly, you have to understand philosophically what your perspective is. So both on the thought leadership activation side and then like how do we represent ourselves out in the competitive environment and particularly to the analysts and the investor community. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much for going into that. Yeah, I love thinking about the broad strokes philosophy rather than just jumping into the tactics because you can obviously, there's a lot of things you can do to get competitive intel, but just making sure you understand what are the most important things to your company that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. So another question that was one of the top ones for the market research AMA was about the product development stage. So before that happens, Mm -hmm. how do you present market and buyer insights to product? So what do they own at the stage? I think related to this and a lot of questions we get and talk about on this podcast are about you know, influencing the product team. So how might you use documents like this to actually present insights that could affect the future roadmap. Yeah. One of my biggest learnings from the analyst world is you kind of already know what you want the data to say, 
before you go and get the data. And so in some ways, like you have to think about what the goal is before you even go into building a document or presenting your insights. You have to have some sort of point of view in mind and create a hypothesis that you are going to either prove or disprove to yourself. Not using that to prove or disprove it to anybody else yet because you're basically stating your opinion and making sure that you're validating whether that opinion is valid or not. And so I think having that in mind before you even start is probably the best thing to do. If you've got some trusted advisors inside the company, whether it's on the sales side or in your customer org or product or anywhere, and you want to just run that kind of quote unquote goal by them, just to validate that at the highest level before you get started, I think that's the right, you know, that's what I would typically do and what I encourage my team to do just to make sure they're kind of on the right track. But yeah, based on that, you could do a bunch of things like go and get some total addressable market data. Like, is it even worth my time going to look into this new market? What is the serviceable market? Like, can we even go and address this based on our current set of products and features? And like, is this business that we're able to go and access and so I think that is a really healthy yes. to do it is quite different than the regular product marketing work that we do creating a TAM is quite different and so I know some PMMs do it some PMMs don't it's actually probably a good exercise to just go through it once in your PMM life <laughs> to actually go through and figure out how to build a TAM like some companies have whole market intelligence teams that do this I spent a bunch of time with the books at Adobe and I was an analyst and so you know like they have a huge team that works on just the raw data and they work with the analysts and they spend hours and hours pouring over the growth rates and things like that and if you don't have that team though you might want to spend a few minutes like setting yourself up for success and trying to understand are there any reports or forecasts that I can look at that help me you know, better inform myself on what's going on in the market and the goal. And then really any kind of detailed analysis after that would really just be more like a discussion document, like how much is the revenue opportunity? What are the key use cases? What are the key industries? Like, is there any customer concentrations that we can already see based on these use cases in these industries? Like, are there natural product market fit type of use cases? And so I think there's a whole host of things that you could take a look at after that can help drive really good discussion and at that point you really just want everyone's input because everyone in the company knows something about our customers and knows something about what we want to do and they might have a bit of a different take so you want their input at that point and so yeah that's how I typically go about these kind of things. Yeah, I love it. And I'll recap the hypothesis I think is really strong just so you can get alignment. Hey, does anyone care about this hypothesis? Is this something yeah. we should even be looking at? And then also, I think there's a lot of questions about, especially at bigger companies, about ownership. Who's going to do TAM? Who's going to look at competitive intel? I think it's better to just take the approach of what is missing and yeah. where can PMM add value? You know, different companies, product is going to own things and different companies, user research or design is going to own things. Yeah. So I think just taking that approach is helpful to just understand where are we at? What are we missing? What would be the most impactful here? And then relatedly, one of your other AMA questions that was on the top of the market research section was about how do you delineate the responsibilities of market research between product marketing and user research? Do you have any hard and fast rules or do you sort of just say what's missing here? Yeah, we just would typically say what's missing. I think 
as long as that mutual goal is kind of in place or that, uh, as you were saying, the hypothesis is in place and everybody agrees on here's the thing that's missing. And we just typically would divvy up the work based on who has the most capacity at this point. And if it's something that, I mean, if it's not in the critical path of something that we're working on, then we would probably just be a more like a consultant and provide feedback if the UX team needed to get involved and sort of drive, then they would. But it really just depends on the urgency and also what the desired kind of outcome is. If we've got a new product that's launching or we needed to get some research going for a new name or something like that, it's more likely that we're going to be driving. We're going to be driving and the UX team is going to be helping us, you know, work with customers to try and facilitate or those kinds of things. But yeah, most of the time it's just who has the capacity, who has the willingness and who has the most urgent, right? Yeah, definitely. Or yeah, who has the resources for it sometimes, who has the budget for it. So yeah, I love it. It doesn't have to be a hard and fast rule. And yeah, as long as you align to that mutual goal, like you said, I think that's the most important thing. So now switching gears a little bit to sales enablement. So I know this is a big part of the job and the focus for you, but just again, starting a little bit more broadly, are there any tools that you'd recommend for sales enablement? Oh yeah, this is an interesting one. I remember when I was going through thinking about, okay, how do I answer this AMA question? Because my best tool is the relationships I have with my sales team. And so I think like, it's not exactly a piece of software that you use, but it is a tool that you should have in your toolbox as a PMM. And so, you know, I would say, make sure that you have great relationships with some key sales leaders. You don't need to be totally connected with every single sales leader, but just as long as you have a couple of key relationships with some of your sales leaders, as well as some of the superstar sellers, like who's out there doing transformational deals, make sure you get to know who they are and why they're doing those really great deals like you will find in every single company there are a couple of sales superstars that are just out there crushing it every single quarter and maybe they're from a non-traditional background or maybe a traditional seller but there's just going to be some that are out there crushing it find them find what their secret sauce is and why they're so successful because oftentimes you'll find that they've just really nailed the products and the narrative and all those things. And they've just done a really great job of communicating it with the customer as well as their sales execution. But I think you'll typically find that those folks are, have got a really great handle on the narrative. When I look at the actual tools on sales enablement, we use a bunch of things. We have Crown for Competitive Intelligence. We have High Spot. We have Gong. We have self-paced training. And then we use an AI tool to do certification on our pitches and so that's kind of one of the things that our enablement team has started using and it seems to be working pretty well so you do your pitch and the AI will either pass you or fail you based on the language in your pitch so it's pretty good wow that saves so much time as someone that's had to certify a sales team before (laughs) exactly it's pretty good yeah that's awesome yeah one thing I would add to I totally agree with everything you're saying and especially becoming very close with those transformational sellers right away is at many companies I've been at, I've started a sales and marketing council. And so that will be the top sellers as well as a few marketing folks that meet monthly to discuss the hot topics. And usually you've probably seen this too, when you come into a role, usually the sellers have like the one thing that they're dying to have fixed. Like your sales deck is out of whack or hasn't been updated in years, or you need some vertical specific content, or there's some pain point that you can quickly 
try to understand, you know, what they need. So it's a bit of a give and take, you know, you help provide them with some much needed content or things they need to do their job better. And they're giving you these invaluable insights or letting you tag along on their sales pitches so you can kind of see what's happening. So I really liked that. Do you have a cadence for how often you like to meet with the sales team or is it more as needed or how have you approached it? Yeah, I think this one's interesting. I've thought a lot about this over the last few months because I actually made it a goal for our PMMs to meet with sales at least once a quarter. And that doesn't sound like a lot, but I wanted to make sure that I had something that was measurable for our PMMs to actually make sure that they're out there in the field with our customers. Because now that we have things like Gong, you don't really have to spend a ton of time in the sales conversation because you can just listen to the call and find out what happened or fast forward to the sections that you want to know like what happened. And so you don't necessarily need to join a call to listen anymore. And so I wanted to just be intentional about having that exposure and that FaceTime be part of like a specific measure for our PMM. And so like from a measurable standpoint, that's the most important part. Trying to meet with someone in sales in some capacity as often as you can, I think is like really important. And it doesn't necessarily have to be sales either. It could be customer success or professional services or some other customer facing team. And so I think just making sure that you're listening really, like you've got your ears to the ground, you're starting to think, really trying to understand like what's the sentiment right now. And I think this is the first session of the new year. Who knows what's going to happen next month or in the next quarter because the macroeconomic environment is just so uncertain at the moment. And so the more that we can be listening for cues from our customers about what they're thinking or whether they're being price sensitive or any of those kinds of things, at least right now, it's so important for us to just get those cues as early as possible. Totally agree. And As someone that just recently moved over to consumer product marketing, I find myself missing the sales team a lot because they were Mm -hmm. able to kind of give me the high level takeaways of what the customer base was saying. Now I have a more direct line to the customers, but I understand there's so much more research that needs to be done to really get those key insights and takeaways from the customers versus the sellers that are talking to 10, 12 customers a day sometimes that can just kind of give you the quick highlights or lowlights of what's happening. So that was a really critical lifeline. And I'm glad you're having a goal around meeting with them regularly because yeah, things are changing really rapidly right now. It's really important to stay abreast of that. And just in general for sales enablement programs, since it's such a part of our job as product marketers, how do you actually measure the success of whether sales enablement is working or not? Yeah, it's interesting. I think I'm less explicit about enablement at Twilio we actually have a separate enablement org that reports into the sales org they don't report up into product marketing or marketing and so what's interesting is like we have a really tight interlock with that team but we don't explicitly hold product marketers accountable for like the sales enablement effort Mm -hmm. however we do hold them accountable for things like attributed pipeline where at the bottom of the funnel we may need different kinds of resources to help our sales teams move faster through the funnel and so we do pay attention to things like deal cycle time 
or areas where we have sort of friction towards the latter stages of the deer cycle or the marketing funnel, just to make sure that we're paying attention to those triggers. We have a monthly cadence with all of our partners, including, you know, across marketing and sales and product and product marketing drives that. And we call a monthly marketing review and we just all get together and make sure that if there's anything coming up that we need to pay attention to, like in any areas of the funnel, that we're able to highlight it and take action on it as early as possible to make sure that everybody kind of knows about it. So yeah, that was a bit of a non-answer, but ultimately sales sourced pipeline, attributed pipeline, those kinds of things, like we'll pay attention to just make sure that we know what the trends look like. That's great. That makes a lot of sense. Well, it's time for our lightning round, Vanessa. All right, let's start off with your mentors. Who have been your strongest PMM mentors along the way? Yeah, well, I mean, you heard me say earlier, I am still a relatively new product marketer, and I am really grateful for my very first VP of product marketing. He was sort of like a product marketing guru, I would say. Started out in the 90s at Microsoft doing product marketing before it was even product marketing, right? And so I learned a ton from him just in his style and the things that, you know, we should really pay attention to. But actually, I feel really lucky that at Twilio, I got to learn from some really excellent product marketers. Like my CMO was formerly a product marketer and even our chief operating officer, George Hu, was head of product marketing at some stage in his career. And so both of those two have their own styles. And I learned a lot from how they think about marketing our products and just in general, like the broad strokes sort of leadership style around how to do really great product marketing. So that's awesome. Yeah. Love it. Well, yeah, it's always great to work for people that have had product marketing experience, but those that can help to really push you in that next direction, I think are super valuable too. So thanks for sharing with you there. All right. What has been one thing that has been incredibly important in terms of growing your career? This is interesting. I really just follow my nose, but effectively I am a builder, right? I really like to create opportunities or get myself into something. I'm pretty intellectually curious. And so I like to take on pretty meaty projects to figure out how to change the face of doing something, right? I feel really lucky that at Twilio, I joined at a time where, you know, we did go through a pretty massive hiring spree and we had to really change the way that we did things multiple times since I've joined. And so we've kind of revamped how we've done enablement, we've revamped how we've done product marketing, we've revamped how we've done like a bunch of different things, right? And so we were talking earlier about the intersections of some of these different teams, like I've been able to take on a ton of new sort of different and interesting projects that have helped really change the face of the company. So yeah, that's probably one of the most important things that I look for and probably why I've spent so much time at Twilio because I keep like finding these really interesting things to work on. So yeah. So fun. You're able to reinvent and build along the sort way. Sort of, yeah. Cool. All right. What about networking? Love it? Hate it? Do you do it? <laughs> I do it. For me, it was a lot easier in the pre-pandemic times. Even just inside the company, we were talking about sales earlier. I used to just go into the office after lunch, walk over to the sales section, stand at the desk and be like, hey, what deal are you working on? And then I would find out right away, right? It's a little bit harder now. It's like 
reach out on Slack, try and figure out who you know, like, hey, what's going on? And unless you're really active and trying to go to all the sales happy hours, you don't get as much exposure to that serendipitous info. So the internal networking has become a little bit more difficult, I would say. But the thing that I do love doing is just meeting up with customers at events. One thing that I really missed during the pandemic was booth duty. And I never ever <laughs> thought that I would say that ever in my life, right? Like, Whoa, be careful uh, what you wish for. I know, right? <laughs> But the thing that I really missed about it was you could show up and you could test your pitch with a customer and they could give you that real-time feedback. You could get their body language, you know, when they're nodding and when it's like you're losing them. And so that part I really missed because I think for two years, we just didn't get that really personal loop on, is this messaging really working? Like, do I know that my stuff is going well, you know? So connecting with customers at events is still like the very best way to find out what's going on and build those connections. Yeah. That's so funny. I just did that at Adobe Max conference and it was like five hours a day and I was so oh, exhausted. But it was so amazing because I met so many different customers and I was able to kind of think about all the different pain points they're having and start thinking about customer segmentation based on a lot of those conversations. So it was worth it. But I was like, wow, I need more caffeine next time. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's a lot, right? Because it's sort of like building up your tolerance. You have a glass of wine at night and you're like, okay, yeah, that's fine. But when you don't have any, you're like, oh no, wow, wow, that was a lot. And so when you go to an event for five or six hours a day for a couple of days, you just get so wiped out, but it's so worth it. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> Well, I'll see you at the next conference. We're going to do this. (laughs) Awesome. All right. Last question for you, Vanessa. Why product marketing? Great question. I think product marketing is just a nice mix of my natural aptitude. It's a nice mix of the skills that I've developed over time. I like looking at the big picture and the details at the same time. And I'm sure that sounds like or feels like a bit of a misnomer to some people, but I truly do like the variety of being able to say like, okay, well, one minute I'm being strategic and the next minute I'm going to context switch and I'm going to work on like, hey, what's going on with this TAM data? And hey, I'm going to be like, oh, okay, what's our thought leadership going on? Right? Like, so you're able to just truly see a lot of different things pretty regularly. And I just enjoy the variety of being exposed to different functions and teams and learning about how the rest of the company works to figure out like those gaps that we were talking about earlier, like where can we slot in and add value and really try and make sure that we're having an impact across the company. So yeah. Love it. And if people want to hear more, can they reach out to you on LinkedIn or what's the best way to stay connected? Yeah, reach out to me on LinkedIn over the break. Got rid of my Twitter, so that's not a thing anymore for me. Reach out to me on LinkedIn. I would love to be connected. There is still a lot of kind of online stuff happening. So happy to make those connections over LinkedIn. I also have a few kind of product marketing sort of seminar type of things that I've done. Early in the pandemic, I did one with the New Zealand Trade and Enterprise team and I posted online Vanessa's whole philosophy of doing product marketing or the end-to-end five-step flow of how I look at the world. And so anyone's interested that's linked on my LinkedIn profile and then I have a whole worksheet and workbook and all of that I produced alongside it so yeah happy to share that with anybody that wants it great we'll add that to the show notes too that sounds fantastic well so great getting to know you this was so much fun for me thank you for being the first interview of season five and wish you all the best thanks again for joining thanks so much for having me bye this show is produced by Sherberg 
the knowledge sharing platform for the fastest growing teams. It's the place to get on-demand answers to your questions and learn from leaders in the top of their field. Want more advice and insights? Head to sharebird.com.